Okay. Let's just bow our hearts one more time as we turn to God's word together, shall we? Well, Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that your word says of itself that it is living and powerful. And it's able to divide within our hearts and minds that which is fleshly, that which is spiritual, that which is just of the natural mind, that which is spiritual. So Lord, help us to understand things spiritually. Lord, help us to see the truth of the things that your word reveals to us. Help us, Lord, to see your complete control over all of history. And Lord, as we study these things this morning, help us also to understand your mercy and your grace. That you're a God not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to know you and come to repentance. And so, Lord, we just give you this time. Speak through me. Take my words, I pray. And Lord, may they just be led of your spirit. And Father, give each and every one of us, Lord, hearts that are ready to receive and ears that are open. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're continuing with our study through the book of Revelation. Incredible book. Just to remind ourselves again of this book. It's the book of the revelation of Jesus. We shouldn't lose sight of that. It's not just a book that's full of these incredible prophecies and stories of the end of the world and so on. It's a book that reveals Jesus. It's really a a portrait in many respects of him. So if we want to understand Jesus, this is a great place to start because we learn so much of who he really is. You know, the world has this concept of Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild and so on. And yet actually, as we will see, of course Jesus is gentle. Jesus is meek. But Jesus is also just. Jesus, we find from Scripture, is the creator of all things. But he's also going to be the judge of all things. It's incredible, isn't it, that of all the names that are used in blasphemy, it's the name of Jesus that is used most frequently. How many times have you heard somebody use Muhammad's name or Allah's name in blasphemy and get away with it? It doesn't happen, does it? Or what about Buddha or Confucius or any other philosopher or religious leader? What about Jesus? Why is it that Jesus' name is so frequently used with disdain? Well, this book is the book of the revelation of Jesus and it reveals him as the judge of all things. And it's going to unveil him in all his glory and majesty. And as we've said before, that without this book, the Bible would not be complete. Just as Genesis is the book of beginnings, so Revelation is the book of endings. What begins in Genesis is concluded in Revelation. You know, we shouldn't see it as totally independent books. This is one continuous theme that starts in Genesis and works all the way through. And it's the unveiling of God's complete plan. And the book of Revelation itself foretells the end of this order of things, the way the world is at present. And that shouldn't really surprise us because you don't need to be religious, you don't need to be a Christian to realize that this world can't carry on the way it is forever. You know, there's just too many issues and problems. It's the only book in the Bible as well that has the audacity of promising a blessing just simply for reading it. If you read this book, we're told that you will be blessed. Now in this book we're going to find that it foretells the end of Satan's rule on planet Earth. A lot of people kind of wonder why things happen. Well, of course God is in control. But effectively man forfeited our right to rule way back in the Garden of Eden. And ever since then Satan is the the God of this world. That's what the Bible tells us. And that's why so many things are as they are. 
It will also be a book that will reveal and we'll see later on in our study, not this morning but in a few weeks' time, the end of the world's false religious systems. You know, it's incredible when you look at religion and you can trace everything back to the same source. There's a lot of similarities, of course, there's no secret. But everything ultimately all goes back to Babylon. Everything, all the religions in the world. And they, of course, come from what originally was established in the Garden of Eden with God's promise that he would send this seed, the offspring of a woman who would become the saviour. And then there's all sorts of derivatives that come from the things that follow. The book of Revelation also deals with the end of the world's political systems. You know, it's no secret, again, that you look at the problems that we have with poverty, with hunger, with famine, all those, those things we see, really brought about by man. There's no shortage of food in the world. But it's because of man's greed. It's because of people that want to have the power. The book also clearly shows the destiny of the church. God's plan for the church. Where will the church end up? It also shows the destiny of the nation of Israel. As I said before, if you want to understand everything, you need to understand two thrones. One is the, the throne of your own heart. If you understand that, and the fact that the only way to really enjoy and live life is to surrender the throne of your heart to Jesus, to let him take the reins, take the the keys, as it were, and drive. That's one throne. The other throne is the throne of David. It's a throne that we read about in the Old Testament. It was a national Jewish throne. And if you want to understand all the problems that we see going on in the Middle East, all the problem with, with Islam, and all these things that we see about in the world today, if you understand the throne of David, all the pennies drop. The pieces of the jigsaw fall into place. The book... Revelation makes it very clear the ultimate destiny of the nation of Israel. And it also shows the destiny of all unbelievers, those who choose not to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We just read Psalm 14 this morning. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. Well, the translators there have added a couple of words, because actually what the Greek says is the fool has said in his heart no God. If you were in a, a restaurant and they brought around the sweet trolley after the meal, this is kind of hypothetical because it's never happened to me, uh, and they said, would you like something? And I went, no, sweet. I said, I've never done that. I've always, you know. But that's what the world has done. They've not said, I don't believe it exists. They said, I don't want it. The fool has in his heart, no God. One of the most ridiculous advertising campaigns that was ever entered upon was by the humanistic atheists in this country some years ago, and they had on the side of buses going around in London, there probably is no God. Why the, why bother even spending the money to make such a ridiculous statement? I mean, as soon as you put probably in there, you just, what's the point of carrying on? They, they can't be sure, they don't know. Well, the truth is actually they do know. And I think everybody in their hearts recognises that there is more to this life. You know, and as has often been said, you know, you get someone in the middle of a storm, in the middle of a, an ocean, and even an atheist will try praying. So this book ties together all the Old and New Testament prophecies. And by the way, there's about 800 allusions to the Old Testament in the 404 verses in this book. So in the book of Revelation, just 404 verses, and there's about 800 times it references back. That's almost two per verse. In fact, it's just under two per verse. Where it's drawing from the Old Testament. So to understand the book of Revelation, we need to have some sort of understanding of the Old Testament. It helps us to unlock these things and... We'll certainly be mentioning a few of the Old Testament things this morning as we look at the passage in a moment. 
But the book really leads us to this eternity with Jesus enthroned as the universal King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, <clears throat> the word as will appear 65 times in this book. It's to describe something that's like, something that's as dead, as John says in the first chapter. He wasn't saying he was dead, he was like dead, he was as dead. John says, I saw 35 times. So there's a lot of imagery that we're going to see. Things that John's seeing, he's trying to explain as best as he can. The word behold is found 26 times. That's John's way of saying, whoa, look at this. Take note. And then the word great will also appear 72 times. Lots of great things that are going on in this book that John is just doing his best to, to articulate for us. It's the magnitude, this overwhelming experience and the things he's seeing. Now, just to bring us up to speed, we had a week off last week going through the book of Revelation. So in the first chapter, we get an introduction to the book, and then it's John's vision of Jesus. I mean, John had seen Jesus. He'd walked with him around the, the shores of Galilee and the mountains of Judea for three and a half years. He'd been his friend. But now John gets to see Jesus in a totally different way. Glorified as he is, as God. And then the next couple of chapters we see seven letters that Jesus himself pens and instructs to be sent to seven churches that existed in Asia Minor, or modern day Turkey at that time. But those letters aren't just letters to those churches as we saw when we studied it. They are letters that lay out, that map out the whole of the history of the church. This is one of the incredible things about the Bible. The Bible isn't just a book with interesting religious stories. It's a book that tells the future in advance. Now, the world has a word they refer to predictions. This is not predictions. A prediction is a guess. An educated guess sometimes, we do that with the weather, don't we? We can guess it's probably going to rain in this country, certainly. But the Bible doesn't deal with predictions. It deals with prophecy. It's very, very different. Prophecy is the future recorded in advance. How can you do that? Well, you need to be able to get into a time machine and go forward and see what happens and come back and record it. Well, we can't do that, but God can, because God is outside of time. And so God has recorded for us in the Bible things that are yet to happen, so we can understand where we're going. And those letters to the churches, although a lot of it's now history for us, as we sit here 2,000 years on, the whole of the history of the church was laid out. We then get to chapter 4 and 5 and we see John caught up into this vision of heaven and he sees a throne room and Jesus effectively there is this lamb who had been slain. And Jesus being the only one found worthy to take the, the title deed to the earth. Remember Adam had lost the title deed to the earth back in Genesis, back in the Garden of Eden. Satan had claimed title to the earth. And the only one that was worthy to, to claim it back had to be somebody who was a kinsman, a relative of Adam. That's why God had to come in the flesh in the person of Jesus to claim back as a kinsman, a family member of Adam, but also one who was worthy, who was sinless. And so Jesus, we see in chapter 4 and 5, claim back title to the earth. And then we get to this period of time that Jesus himself refers to as the beginning of sorrows. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. But then we see these seven seals on this scroll gradually open one by one. As part of that, in chapter 7, we see 144,000 Jews that are sealed, they're supernaturally protected because of the judgments that are about to come on the world. God has a very specific job for these individuals to do. And as a result of their ministry, it would seem that a great multitude of people come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. Now, again, we'll mention in a moment, but the church has already been taken out before this. So these are those who didn't believe in God, who rejected God. But suddenly, because of the events that are going on, start to go, well, 
we need to do something. And they realize that it's God that's bringing these judgments. And we see seven trumpets, seven angels with seven trumpets. As each trumpet successively sounds, the, the judgments get more severe. And then we get to where we are this morning, where time is up. And we'll look at that in just a moment. It's the end of this crescendo that we've been building to. In fact, for the first group of chapters that we see there, chapter 6 through 9, it's just been this continual building to this point. And all that we've seen in those chapters is the fulfillment of what Jesus spoke of in Matthew 24, when he spoke there of the beginning of sorrows. And this is all going to occur in the first half of this seven-year period of time that is yet to come. And it will be in the first three and a half years, just to, to look at it, make it easy again. We've got this seven-year period of time. A number of passages in the Bible refer to this. The first three and a half years, Jesus himself gives this title, The Beginning of Sorrows. And then the last half is The Great Tribulation, where things really get rough. The church is going to be taken out of this world at the beginning here. Just as we see with the situation with Sodom and Gomorrah, God went and rescued Lot, took him out before the judgment came. And there's so many other examples we can give in scripture of things just like that. The God will always protect his own and take them out. You see, the church has already been judged in a sense because Jesus took our punishment at Calvary. So we don't need to be judged. So we'll take it out before this time. And then God will start to pour out these judgments on the earth. At the second coming, when Jesus returns to this earth, the church will come back with him. Now this period of time, the beginning of sorrows, we see an incredible parallel between the passages in Revelation that we've been going through recently and in Matthew 24. You see, Matthew 24, we find there that Jesus says that many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ, they shall deceive many. Well, in Revelation 6 verse 2, we find that a specific one does indeed come, imitating Christ. The word we're so familiar with the title. There's so many titles actually given to this character, but the one we're probably most familiar with is Antichrist. He comes in the place of Christ. And then we find that there's wars and rumors of wars. And Revelation 6 tells us that. Verse 4. Then there's a famine that will follow on, as very often follows on from a time of war. And then we find this pestilence that Jesus spoke of. Revelation 6 actually speaks of beasts of the earth. Now, naturally we may think of large creatures, but... And that could also imply small creatures, bacteria and so on, that could quite equally be the, the fulfillment of those things. And then there's unprecedented earthquakes. Jesus spoke of those things. There should be earthquakes in diverse places, Jesus said. In Revelation 6, verse 12, we see an earthquake that shakes the entire world. And then finally we get to this verse in 14 of Matthew 24, where the gospel of the kingdom is to be preached. Now, who is to preach it? If the church are gone, who's doing the preaching? Well, I believe it will be those 144,000 Jews that will be supernaturally protected to do that job as a witness. But then notice how Jesus concludes that. and We saw that in Revelation 7. Jesus concludes in Matthew 24 and says, And then shall the end come. And that's where we're at this morning. We've seen all of that. We've come to this point, And Jesus' words are, Then shall the end come. So the warning signs have been given. The great tribulation is now about to start. Time really is up. God is now going to dispossess the usurpers from the earth and reclaim the title to the earth. So let's begin. Let's look at verse 1 of Revelation chapter 10. And we read, And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. 
And he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right hand, or sorry, his right foot upon the sea, and his left foot on the earth. Now, the first thing I want to just highlight here is the mission that this angelic being has to fulfill, because it's this mighty angel, and he has this little book. Now, the last time we see this mighty angel in this book was back in chapter five. I suggest that what we're seeing here is this title deed to the earth now, effectively. Now that the seals have been loosed, now the angel is coming and saying, this is now the evidence, the documentation that states very clearly that the earth now reverts to the control of Jesus Christ. No longer will it be under the control of Satan. J. Vernon McGee, a great Bible teacher and scholar, said this, said this little book, if it is the same as a seven seal book, which obviously he thinks it is, and I would agree, was originally in the hands of the Father in heaven in Revelation 5.1. It should be noted how it is first transferred to the nail-pierced hands of God the Son. It was given to the Lord Jesus, who was the only one who could open it. The breaking of the seven seals opened the book, and the seven trumpets, six of which have already been blown, are still part of what is in the book. After he removes the seals, the Lord Jesus Christ in turn transfers the book to the angel who gives it finally to John to eat. This is the book of the title deed of the earth, and it contains the judgments of the great tribulation by which the Lord Jesus is coming to power. The book is now open and the judgments are on display. This book is in the angel's authority for claiming both the sea and the earth for Christ. Now I want to just highlight something as well, because if you look in certain Bible commentaries, you may find that some will suggest they think that this angel is actually Jesus. And it's not an unrealistic uh, suggestion, because this individual is clothed with a cloud, with a rainbow. His face, as it were, as the sun, his feet as pillars of brass, all ideas that we've seen of, of Jesus. If you remember, Jesus we find is clothed in the cloud on many occasions. He had this rainbow around his head, face like a sun, his feet as pillars of fire. In verse 2 we're going to find he roars like a lion. So you can see why a number of people think that this could be Jesus himself. In Exodus, the Lord, or Jesus there, pre-incarnate version of Jesus, the image of Jesus is seen clothed in the cloud in many scriptures actually. In Revelation 4.3 we see this rainbow around the throne. Revelation 1.16, John said that Jesus' face was like the sun in his strength. Revelation 1.15, John tells us that Jesus' feet were like unto brass that burned in a furnace. So you, you can start to understand why some people make that assumption. But Proverbs 18.17 says, The first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. And when you look a little bit deeper, there's a number of telltale things that we're given. Firstly, the word that we find that's in the Greek here is another, another mighty angel. The word in the Greek is alos. Now, we only have one word for another, but in the Greek language, they have a couple of words that can be used for another. It could be another of the same kind or another of a different kind. Now, I might be writing something and I snap my pencil and I ask for another. You may give me another pencil. It'll be another of the same kind. Or you might give me a pen, which would be another of a different kind. So that's how those typically those words could be used. Well, here, the word that's used is alos. It means another of the same kind. Now, the question is, another in what regard? Is it another mighty angel, as in 5.2, or is it another angel who came down from heaven? Because in the previous chapter, we see an angel come down from heaven. Now, in a sense, it's a, a mute argument, because whichever side of that you fall on, 
the same conclusions reached that this is still an angelic being. This is another angel. It's not Jesus. It's not uh, uh, another appearance of Christ. Christ is still sat at the right hand of the Father at this point. What we see here, though, is this angelic being clothed, if I'm going to put it this way, in royal apparel. He's on a state mission. Now, back in Genesis 41, you remember the situation with Joseph. When Joseph is promoted by Pharaoh, Pharaoh gives him his royal clothing. He gives him a ring. When people would see Joseph riding along his chariot, they'd have to look twice to see whether it was Joseph or Pharaoh because from an appearance point of view, they look the same. In Esther, the book of Esther, in chapter 6, this wonderful portion where the king, Artaxerxes, has been uh, up all night, couldn't get to sleep, and he's been thinking, and so he starts to read through some of the chronicles of, of things that have taken place in his Roman kingdom. He reads about this plot that had been hatched against him and reads that this individual Mordecai had foiled the plot and exposed those that were plotting against the king. And he realized that nothing had ever been done to say thank you to Mordecai. And Haman, this arch enemy, the baddie in the, the story, arrives early for work that morning. He's standing outside and the king says, who's, who, who's in the court? And one of his servants says, oh, uh, Haman's here. He says, well, send him in. And so Haman comes into the courtroom and the king says, Haman, I've been thinking, what do you think I should do to reward somebody who's really great and really special, who's done good things for the king. And of course, Haman in his proud, egotistical manner thinks, well, <laughs> it's got to be me, surely. Who else would the king want to reward more than me? So he says, well, king, I think what you should do is uh, uh, you should uh, clothe him in all your apparel. Give him, give him your ring. Let him sit upon your horse and then parade him through the streets of the city. And somebody should go before him saying, this is what the king does to the man he delights to honour. And the king says, that's a great idea. Okay, I want you to go and do that for Mordecai. Of course, Haman absolutely detests Mordecai. And then we see Haman having to lead this horse, shouting out, this is what the king does, the man is like, no enthusiasm at all, I'm sure, in anything he said. So, a wonderful account. Of course, that, by the way, just to fill in the blanks there, that also is a unveiling of what took place with Satan. God's creating this world. It's incredible. As God throws all the stars out into space and makes everything that we have, the, the plants, the vegetation, and all the things we see, and Satan's sitting there thinking, well, <laughs> who's this for if it's not for me? We read in the book of Ezekiel that Satan was the this anointed cherub. He was a very, very exalted angel, possibly one of the top angels, if not the top. We, we read that he was basically had musical instruments built into his body. He led the worship in heaven. Yes, all the world's problems began with the worship leader. And Satan there at the beginning of the creation is thinking, well, surely this is for me. And of course then God creates man in his image. And just like Haman was so envious of Mordecai, Satan was envious of Adam. And that's why Satan has been literally hell-bent on destroying mankind wanting to claim back or take that which he thought was should have been his in the first place. And so he deceives Adam and ends up with the title to the earth and so on. But that aside, back into the with the situation, Mordecai is clothed with the regalia of the king. Well, this angel, why does he look like Jesus? Because he's coming on a royal errand with the authority of Jesus. He's coming on an extremely important mission because he's coming in the name of Jesus, as his ambassador and representative, to say, now I am claiming back the earth for Jesus Christ. 
And anybody that would contest it, he would simply hold up this document that states that Jesus is worthy. And we read, just carrying on and cried with a loud voice, and when a lion roars, when lions roar, they, they do it to strike fear into their prey, to exert their dominance. It's kind of fitting here because as this lion or this angel cries with this loud voice, it's like a, a lion, the, the world needs to be ready because judgment is coming. And we read, and when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now we've already seen those seven seals, there were seven trumpets, now these seven thunders. But this time, we read verse 4, and when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. Interesting, because everything else John's been told to record and pass on to us, but this is something for some reason God says, no, don't record that. Maybe it would be too much for us to get our heads around, to hear what is going to happen. These, these thunders, as it were, uttered their voices, as we see the judgment that comes from those things. Verse 5 carries on, And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth, lifted up his hand to heaven, and swore by him that lives forever. Now this is a reason, one of the reasons we know that this is not Jesus. Because we read that he swore by him that lives forever and ever, who created heaven, and the things that are therein, and the earth, and the things that are therein, and the sea, and the things that are therein, that there should be time no longer. So this angelic being is now making this declaration in the name of Jesus. You see, he's an ambassador, he's a representative. Now, we find an interesting phrase here that has caused some to get a little confused. And it's this phrase at the bottom, that there should be time no longer. Now, that's led to some strange ideas that suddenly time will stop. Well, that's not what it's saying. What it's saying is that the inhabitants of the earth are now out of time. Time is up, as I said at the start. We know time will continue because following on from this, we'll end up with a a period of a thousand years, referred to as the millennium. Well, that implies immediately that there's a measure of time. Even in the New Jerusalem, we're going to find that there'll be fruit that will bring, or trees that will bring forth their fruit in their season. That again implies some sort of measure of time. So, time is not going to stop. And yes, ultimately we'll go into eternity, but there'll be some sort of measure. So it's not saying that time will stop. It's simply saying, the people of the earth are out of time. As we've seen already, it's been built into a crescendo. The beginning of sorrows is complete. It's like, now, enough. God has been merciful and gracious. The judgments that have come so far have all been with the intent to try and draw man to Jesus. That they would realize, that they would repent. Everything that's happened has been in measure. But when we go beyond this point, God will pour out his wrath. Unrestrained. In the book of Joel we read this, And the Lord shall utter his voice before his army. For his camp is very great, and he is strong that executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can abide it? That's what's coming from this point. It's been getting more and more intense, and this is the point we've got to. Verse 7 of Revelation 10, we read, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he's declared to his servants the prophets. What a lovely verse this is, if we just get the context. With all that's going on, with this angel now claiming the earth back for Jesus, this declaration that in the, the days of the sounding of this seventh angel, and all the things that are about to follow, 
Everything is going to be concluded. The mystery of God, we're told, is going to be finished. In other words, we're almost there. Almost home, almost at the end of all this saga, all the pain and the suffering that we've had to endure through the ages. What a long way round it's been. You know, very mindful of the situation with the children of Israel, led by Moses. They came out of Egypt, they went to Sinai, it took them about two, three months or so to get there. They encamp at the base of the mountain for two years. And then they leave from there, and within a matter of months they could have gone into the promised land. But because of their disobedience, they spent 38 years wandering around, only eventually to come back again. But when all that generation had died off, it was only those who were under 20, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, who entered the land. Well, this is just like us, because we've gone all the way around, right from the beginning, from the Garden Garden of Eden, where God and man walked together in harmony. This long, circuitous route through 6,000 years of human history to bring us back to... This place, where finally God's mystery should be finished. And notice what we're told, it's the mystery of God that he's declared to his servants the prophets. This is what we can read in the Bible, this is what the Bible's all about. It tells us about God's plan from beginning to end. In the book of Ephesians, we're told about this very mystery. Chapter 1, verse 9 and 10 says, Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he's purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Let me explain that. Okay. God has made known to us the mystery of his will. What is God's will? Question a lot of people ask. Well, it's the mystery of his will. This is according to his good pleasure because this is what he wanted to do. This is what he purposed in himself. This is what God was really after right from the start. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times. That's simply when everything is said and done. At the end of the day, God might gather together in one all things in Christ. Both which in heaven and earth, everything will be brought together in Jesus. Jews, Gentiles, male, female, slave, free, and so on, as we're told in scripture. Everything is brought together in one in Jesus. That's what God wanted right from the start. God didn't want for us to go through this horrible journey, all the pain and the suffering and the death. That's what we brought upon ourselves. And it cost God the death of his own son to redeem us and purchase us back so that he could come back to this point. But now, those that have accepted Jesus have done so of their own free will. Nobody's coerced into being a Christian. It's a decision that we make independently and with full knowledge. And so ultimately, those that are gathered together in Christ will be those that have come to that realization that Christ has died for our sins. He's purchased us. All we have to do is believe in him. Believe that he has paid the price for our sin. Oh, and sure, when, what will follow is repentance. It's a gift. And there can't be one without the other. Because repentance is the evidence that we've understood the reality of this. Just as James says of faith and works, the works are evidence of your faith. If you're a Christian, you'll want to do things for God. Not because you have to, because you want to. It's a relationship. It's like a marriage. Why do I want to do things for joy? Is because I have to? Well, I have got my honey-do list, of course, but that aside, I, I do things because I love her, because I want to please her. 
And the voice which I had heard from heaven spoke unto me again and said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel which stands upon the sea and upon the earth. And we might just read that verse and carry on to the next one, but I just looked at this and I thought, I can imagine John saying, you go and take it. This mighty angel that's standing there, one foot on the land, one foot on the sea, that's roaring like a lion. I'm sure John must have just a little bit of trepidation when this other angelic being says to him, you, you go, go and take that book from him. It's like, Are you serious? Really? Me? But John obediently goes, uh, excuse me, Mr. Angel, could I possibly have that, that, that book you've got? And he says, I went unto the angel and said to him, give me this little book. Uh, that's the Greek. I'm sure in, in amongst that was, please, if it's okay. And he said unto me, take it and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey. As soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. This is kind of a, a strange thing. What, what's going on? Well, there's a similar situation that we read back in the book of Ezekiel. As I said, there's lots of these things in Revelation that are drawn from other things in the Bible. But in essence, what we've got going on here is the idea of John consuming or taking in the words that are being said, the things that are in the scroll and everything else. You know, prophecy does often taste sweet. It, it excites us. It kind of captures our imagination. Just as, as John takes and starts to eat this book, it, it tastes sweet. But no sooner have you eaten it, no sooner have you started to digest these things, and they become bitter. You know, when we begin to realize the horrific consequences for those who do not turn to the Lord and repent. You know, all the prophecies we've studied, those that we're going to follow as we enter the Great Tribulation, should really turn our stomachs as we stop and consider all those who personally do not know the Lord, those who are on a collision course with the wrath of God. You see, time is running out for the people of this world. That's why it's important that we share our faith with whoever would listen. I had a situation this week, somebody was talking to me, another Christian from another fellowship, another church, and I said they'd had a baptism recently, and they said it was a lovely situation, this lady had been brought up in a Christian family, but she never really believed, and she had a Christian friend who'd been talking to her, and she started going back to church, and then she came to that place of saying, you know what, this is this is real, this is true. And so she put her trust and faith in Jesus Christ. And then she decided she wanted to get baptized, and so she's at a baptism service a, a few weeks ago. And she got up just to share a little bit of her testimony, just explained a little bit of what her, her journey had been like to get to this point in her life. And apparently she just started ranting a little bit because she said not, not long after she became a Christian, she found out that somebody at her work was a Christian. And she said, and they never told me. Can, can you imagine what it would be like for somebody that you have known for years of your life and you've never really mentioned the fact that you're a Christian? When we're enjoying all the wonder and the splendor and the glory of heaven, for them to suddenly find out that you're a Christian and you knew these things all along and you hadn't bothered to mention it. Really, can we put ourselves in that position? I can understand why that woman was frustrated. Suddenly her life had turned around and she started to experience that joy that the Bible speaks about. 
A peace that passes understanding. That even in the midst of the most difficult situations, as we sang in that song this morning, we have an anchor within the veil. You know, when a ship drops its anchor, it needs to get into something hard or or sturdy for it to hold the weight of the ship from pulling. Well, our anchor is secured within the veil. It's an idea that comes from the temple. And behind the temple, you had this inner sanctuary part that was referred to as the Holy of Holies, behind the curtain that was there. And that's where our anchor is secured. It is unshakable. That's the hope that we have as Christians. It's not just a, we believe we'd like to think it might be. We have this certainty. Our hope is secured within, this anchor within the veil. And there's people around us that don't know Jesus, that don't know the truth of these things. And then we think we're a little crazy. Well, that's okay. They're probably a little crazy too in their own ways. It's not about that. It's about truth. And time is running out. So John here eating these words, to start with, it's kind of exciting to a point. But then I think as John starts to realize the enormity of everything that's going on here and the fact that it's a wonderful thing that the earth has now been claimed back for Jesus Christ. It's like, hooray, yes, at last. But what's about to come is the judgment upon the inhabitants of the world who've rejected Jesus. Jesus made the comment that the harvest is great, but the laborers are few. So I'll ask first for this morning to end this chapter. Verse 11, And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. And we're going to see John effectively now over the next few chapters before we get into the Great Tribulation. It's kind of, we're going to go back to the beginning of the the three and a half years. And John is going to be shown things that fill in some of those gaps, some things that will take place in that time. And then we get into this Great Tribulation. But again, let me encourage you to Share the things that the Lord has shown you with other people. You know, somebody said to me at work this week, and they actually weren't speaking of me, they were speaking of somebody else. They said, oh, I don't like being preached to by people. Nobody does. None of us do. No, No one likes people coming up and preaching at us. Well, then let's not preach at people. Just, Just share our faith. And we are told in Scripture to preach the word, be instant in season, out of season. Convince, rebuke, we're told, with all long-suffering and doctrine. We should be patient about these things, and we need to pray about these things. Pray that God will lead us to people that are spiritually hungry. People that will listen. And if people won't listen, then, okay, move on. But let's not ever have a situation where somebody comes to know Jesus Christ and say, were you a Christian? I didn't know that. Let it be known which side we're on. But I don't know about you, but I'm proud that I'm a Christian. I'm proud that I get to serve Jesus Christ. Not because of anything I've done, but because I've been chosen by the King of Kings, by the Creator of all things. And He was not ashamed of me. That's the miracle. Jesus was not ashamed to call my name. And there's a day coming when a book is going to be opened. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And I know my name's in there. I know I don't deserve it, but I know it's in there. And Jesus is not ashamed to stand before his Father and say, he's mine. So why should we be ashamed to stand before this world and say that Jesus is mine? Let's bow our hearts. 
Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you again for your word. Please impress these things upon our hearts. Help us to realize that the clock is ticking. The Lord, time is running out for the people of this world. And Lord, we don't know how long it could be. Months, a year, ten years, a hundred years. We don't know. Lord, the important thing is that, Lord, we are ready and that we share this wonderful news that there is salvation, there is a way because of what you have accomplished for us, because you took upon yourself our sin and all we have to do is simply to pray and ask you to be our Lord and Saviour. And you have promised to forgive us our sin, to cleanse us from unrighteousness, to clothe us with your own righteousness. We just thank you for these things. Lord, we just ask you to be with us through the rest of this day and this week ahead. Keep us close to you, we pray. Keep us growing in the knowledge and grace of our Lord and Saviour Jesus. For it's in his name we ask. Amen.